All right. Uh, thank you so much for attending our Bible study for this evening. This is episode 16, and we're going to focus on some of the questions that was asked for this week's episode. The chief question being, why did Yahusha turn water into wine? What does the wine represent in the first place? We'll go ahead and answer that question uh, for last. But let's go ahead. Let's go ahead first and look at some of the preliminary questions. First one being, are we allowed to have a money lending business? Now, those who are thinking about this question might be saying to themselves, why would anyone ask that question? Well, the reason why is because of a biblical command that was given by Yahuwah God through Moses during the Old Testament. In the book of Exodus, chapter 22, verse 25, it says, if you lend money to any of my people who are in need, do not charge interest as a money lender would. So the Bible says if we are to lend money for to his people who are in need, we charge no interest. So if you are running a money lending business and you do not charge interest, what kind of business are you going to have? You're not going to make any money at all, right? So the question is a legitimate question. The people of God are they allowed to establish a money lending business. What should we understand in this passage given by Yahuwah God uh, to Moses? The purpose of this command is to protect God's people who are in need. Perhaps because of circumstances in one's life, a person might end up in poverty. Yahuwah has a special place in his heart for the poor. And so the purpose of this command is to protect his people who are victims of circumstances, and because of this, they are in need financially, barely able to survive. And so if we have people within our midst, among his people, his nation, we are called upon to help them not to charge interest when we lend money to them. What is God's overall purpose and the spirit of this command? Leviticus 25, 35 to 38, if any Israelites living near you become poor and cannot support themselves, you must provide for them as you would for, his, for a hired worker so that they can continue to live near you. Do not charge Israelites any interest, but obey God and let them live near you. Do not make them pay interest on the money you lend them and do not make a profit on the food you sell them. This is the command of Yahuwah, your God, who brought you out of Egypt in order to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. So what is the purpose of God in giving the command uh, not to charge interest when lending to the poor among the people of Israel? Again, it is to protect the people who are poor. He doesn't want that God's people will take advantage of those who are in need, because if a person is poor, they are desperate and they will ask to borrow money. And because of that desperation, they might be willing to accept a large interest rate, right? Because they're desperate. And so a person might take advantage of their situation and end up oppressing the poor. Yahuwah God does not want us to do this because this is oppressive and is against the righteousness of Yahuwah our God. How does God feel when we ignore this command that he has given his people? Ezekiel 16, 49 to 50. Now, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. Let's remember, 
uh, let's pause it for a while and remember Sodom and Gomorrah. We know what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah, right? God got rid of them by means of a conflagration. It was a big fire that destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. We know about the detestable things that Sodom and Gomorrah are guilty of. What, besides the sexual immorality, which is what is known by many, is Sodom guilty of? Bible says this was a sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant. That's one. Overfed and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them as you have seen. So one of the things that Yahuwah God looked uh, had against the people of Sodom was not only the detestable things that they did, but also the fact that they had no concern for the poor and needy. This shows us that the poor and needy have a special place in the heart of God. This is why if you want to be close to Yahuwah God, you too should have a concern for the poor and needy. In that spirit, in that vein, we need to under, now we can understand the purpose of God's command. When we lend to the poor, we must not charge them with interest because instead of being oppressive, we need to be helpful because this is what God wants us to do. Okay, that's the principle behind the command. Does it mean that God does not permit us to have a money lending business? Because if that's the case, then we should not be having any banking systems because a banking system is based upon interest, right? So if that's true, then going to a bank, earning interest through a bank would be against the will of Yahuwah God. Is this the principle taught to us by the Holy Bible? Remember what the Bible says concerning lending to the poor, right? It specifies the people of Israel and their condition if they are needy. And so in addition to that, uh, Moses added the following, Deuteronomy 23, 19, 20, when you lend money or food or anything else to Israelites, do not charge them interest. You may charge interest on what you lend to foreigners, but not on what you lend to Israelites. Obey this rule and Yahuwah your God will bless everything you do in the land that you're going to occupy. And so what was added by uh, Moses? What was Yahuwah God's command concerning charging interest when you lend to people? When you lend to foreigners, you're allowed to charge interest. Why would that be the case? Because if they are foreigners, you don't have any relationship with them. Because when it comes to money lending, you're lending to a fellow Israelite. You are like lending to family, right? When you lend to family, money, it always leads into conflict and fights, right? It leads to chaos and problems, and it's something that we want to avoid. However, when it comes to lending to someone who we have no relationship with, this is why in the ethics world, there's something called a dual relationship. If you, for example, are working as a pastor in a church and you're also a therapist, 
a member of your congregation should not be a client of yours as a therapist. It's a dual relationship, right? The same thing applies here. So if you are engaging in business with people who are within your congregation or your scope of relationship, it brings conflict of interest. We don't want that. We want, you don't want to uh, lead uh, the possibility. We don't want to open the possibility of potential um, conflict because sometimes there are people who will perhaps abuse your grace, abuse your kindness, and you will end up fighting with one another. So when it comes to foreigners, okay, you can charge interest uh, when you lend money uh, to them. However, we, know, we need to also keep in mind that there are people who will ask for money who are in actual desperate need because it's a matter of life and death. In those situations, I think it would be the godly thing to do to help them by giving them or lending them money without charging interest. Does Yahushua himself, does he teach according to the principle of earning interest? This is a parable of Yahushua, which he taught before. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I return, I would have received it back with interest. So according to Yahushua, he's not against um, establishing a business wherein you earn money because you charge interest when you lend money. Because there are people, especially nowadays, who ask to borrow money, not because they really need it, but because they want to make investments, right? Maybe they want to buy a home, a home or buy a car. It's not because they really need it. It's because they want to make investments. So it's a business decision. And so in that respect, the Bible says when we are establishing a business wherein we earn because of the interest that we charge, it is something that Yahushua uh, up, uh, approves according to this parable of Yahushua. Now take note, the parable uh, taught here by Yahushua does not particularly refer to business concerning money lending, but the principle of earning interest is supported by this parable of Yahushua. However, when we do have a business, for example, you are a member of the Assembly of Yahushua and you establish a money lending business, what should we keep in mind to maintain our integrity? Ezekiel 18, 11 to 13, and that son does all the evil things his father would never do. He worships idols on the mountains, commits adultery, oppresses the poor and helpless, steals from debtors by refusing to let them redeem their security, worships idols, commits detestable sins, and lends money at excessive interest. And so if you have a money lending business, let us not do what is unreasonable in terms of the interest that we're gonna charge. It should not be excessive, okay? It should be what is appropriate and right for both parties involved. What is the warning of God if we will charge with excessive or exorbitant interest? Proverbs 28, 8, he who increases his wealth by exorbitant interest amasses it for another who will be kind to the poor. So the Bible warns if you're going to keep practicing um, principles which are against the righteousness of God, because it's not appropriate, for example, charging exorbitant interest, too much interest, 
eventually you're going to lose your business. Someone else is going to buy it. And this person who's going to take over your business will be kind to the poor. The Bible is telling us if we keep our integrity, we will be blessed and we will prosper. But if we will be greedy, we will lose every, eventually what we currently have. So it's always good business practice to practice the righteousness of Yahuwah, our God. However, like what we said, we belong to a community. We belong to a family, right? The assembly of Yahusha. We are the people of God. If we see some people who are in need, for example, we have a brother or a sister who became a victim of a wildfire. They lost their house and they need money. What should be our response? Luke 6, 34 to 36, if you lend money only to those who can repay you, why should you get credit? Even sinners will lend to other sinners for a full return. Love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to be repaid. Then your reward from heaven will be very great. And you will truly be acting as children of the Most High. For he is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. You must be compassionate as your father is compassionate. And so let us follow the example of our father. Let us be compassionate to the people who are in need, even if they are unthankful and wicked. And so if there are people, especially people who are amongst the people of God, and they are in need, I think it would be unbrotherly like if we will lend them money and expect that and expect for them to return it with interest, right? The best thing to do as much as possible, instead of letting them borrow money as a brother, as a sister, whatever you can afford to give, it would be just, it would be better to say to them, brother, this is uh, my help for you. Just accept this and there's no need for you to repay it. Lend to them, Yahushua says, without expecting to be repaid. Okay, so there are times when we are to reach out and sacrifice to be able to help those who are in need, but it doesn't mean that it's against the will of God to have a business uh, around lending money and, get, and getting business out of the interest, okay? All right, let's go to the next question. About your lesson regarding homosexuality, some disagree because some have felt different when they are already as young as six or seven. If they were just male or female, why would God mention homosexuality? I believe this was the lesson wherein we talked about transgenderism. Now, homosexuality, I know, is a very controversial and very sensitive topic. And so before I go on with this, the discussion, it is the stand of the assembly of Yahusha, not to judge anyone. If a person is gay or homosexual, we do not judge them the way others judge them. However, we do adhere to the principles and the teachings of the Holy Bible. And so what the Bible teaches about the practice of homosexuality is what we will adhere to and put into effect as far as our belief systems is concerned. And so according to the Holy Scriptures, before we address this question, because the question seems to be, how can homosexuality be wrong when as early as six or seven years old, you already have this tendency to choose the same sex? It's kind of hard to believe, though. Someone as young as six or seven has uh, sexual 
urges already. So I don't quite know or quite fully understand the question, but it seems to be the question is following the same line as uh, people who say, I was born this way, right? I am born this way. It's my according to my genes. It's according to my biology. And so if, if I was born this way, I should not be held accountable. I should be allowed to, uh, to follow what I was born to do. And so if I was born to be homosexual, then I should not find the urges, I should not fight the urges that I have as a homosexual. That's the kind of question I'm getting. Okay. So according to the Holy Scriptures, the Holy Scriptures, homosexuality is that something that the Bible teaches that is permissible for the people of God. This is what Apostle Paul teaches in Corinthians 6, verse 9. Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or male prostitutes or practice homosexuality. Apostle Paul gives us a warning concerning practices that disqualifies a person from inheriting the kingdom of God. What are some of these practices? Sexual sin, like fornication, having sex without the benefit of marriage, adultery, having relations with people who already are married. These are some of the practices that disqualifies a person from inheriting the kingdom of God. It's not just homosexuality. However, the practice of homosexuality is definitely included in this teaching of Apostle Paul concerning practices that disqualifies a person from the kingdom of God. Now, what is homosexuality? What is that about? Leviticus 18.22, no man is to have sexual relations with another man or a woman with another woman. God hates that. And so the Bible is clear when it comes to a man having a sexual relationship with another man. It is something that God hates. Therefore, it is a sin. And so we do not uh, practice homosexuality. We do not teach it as something that's permissible and within the teachings of our God. Now, why does God forbid uh, man to have another man as a sexual partner? Genesis 1, 27 to 28. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, govern it, reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Why does God forbid sexual relationships between two males or two females? Because it goes against his design for humanity. What is God's purpose and design? Male and female. They are the ones who can multiply and be fruitful together in terms of sexual relationships. It does not say male and male or female and female, but male and female they were created for the purpose of being fruitful and multiplying. We know what that means, right? And so what would be considered unnatural and against the will of God? Romans 127, and the men instead having normal, and the men instead of having normal sexual relationships with women. So that's normal. According to Yahuwah God's standard, what is normal is 
men having sexual relations with women, right? Of course, uh, God's standard of normal is within the boundaries of what? Marriage, right? And so instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Apostle Paul is speaking about the perversion that is happening in the world, especially now. Because instead of observing or following normal sexual relations, there are people today who go out of bounds within what is normal and burn with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men. And as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserve. So the Bible is very clear when it comes to the practice of homosexuality defined as having sexual relationships of male with male or female with female. So that is our stand. Now let's go to the question. Well, what if people say, well, I was really born this way. I mean, ever since I was six, ever since I was seven years old, all I can remember, I have this preference for the same sex. They have the same sex attraction. And so there are those who are postulating this is perhaps biological or genetic, right? According to my genes, I am a homosexual. And so if we're going to look into this using the scientific method, one of the best ways to do that is to study monozygotic twins, right? What is a monozygotic twin? These are twins who have identical genes, right? Their, they, their genes are 100% the same. And so there were some researchers by the name of Peter Berman and Hannah Bruckner from the Institute of Social and Economic Research and Policy back in 2001 conducted a comprehensive study of twins and same-sex attraction. They wanted to locate a gene that would point to the tendency to practice homosexuality. So what did they uncover in their comprehensive study of twins and same-sex attraction? Um, this is what they found out. The study showed that homosexuality is not, is not genetically based because if it is, then we would, expect we would expect that monozygotic twins or twins that have identical DNA should have the highest concordance for same-sex erotic preference. But the data shows that for identical twins, if one is gay, there's only a 6.7% chance that the other will also be gay. And ironically, for non-identical twins, there is a 7.2% chance. So what does this show you? There's no genetic basis for homosexuality, because if it was genetically based, if you have a, a set of twins and one twin is, is gay or homosexual, then if it's genetically based, then the other twin should also be what? Homosexual, right? But that's not true. It's only true for in 6.7% of uh, the, uh, the data. And so that's even below what you find with non-identical twins. So there's no genetic link between, uh, there's no link whatsoever between your genes and homosexual tendencies. Not only that, uh, another set of research, um, a book what, that became popular back in 1999, My Genes Made Me Do It. And so the purpose of the study was to compile um, different laboratories 
and different uh, research concerning sexual orientation and genes and hormones and biology. It was published in 1999, revised in 2010, and it's being kept current it, even up to now through the website mygenes.co.nz as new scientific discoveries are being made because it's always being made, right? Because we know science is not static, it is dynamic, it's always changing, it's always moving. And so it summarizes more than 20 years of scientific research into homosexuality. It draws on more than 10,000 scientific papers and publications from all sides of the debate. So what have they uncovered so far in their years and years of scientific research? Well, a scan of the whole genome has not found any homosexual genes, unlike the case for schizophrenia. And even with schizophrenia, they only identified four genes linked to 3% of schizophrenia. From an understanding of gene structure and function, there are no plausible means by which genes could dictate same-sex attraction or other behaviors in a person. Well, how about hormones? Because there are those who say, well, if, you, if the, uh, the baby or the embryo inside the womb is subjected to certain hormones, the hormones create a biological uh, function. It creates a change in the person's biology as an embryo. Because, so the person becomes biologically uh, uh, induced to practice or to become homo, to have homosexual tendencies. But this is what was uncovered. Uh, they have been many studies, none of which has shown any convincing relationship between homosexuality and exposure to prenatal hormones, although several have shown very weak links between prenatal hormone exposure and infant play. Studies examining effects of very high doses of female hormones to pregnant mothers show no effect on males and a dubious effect on women. Therapy changing levels of adult male and female sex hormones has been shown to affect sex drive, but not orientation. So we rule out genes, we rule out hormones. Well, there are those who say that they could be problems in the immune system, creating a change in the brain structure, which causes homosexuality. Again, the scientific studies reveal the following, the idea that homosexuality results from immune attack on male brain characteristics by the mother is poorly supported. In that, case, in that case, male testes and genitalia, having the larger cluster of male specific targets should be attacked, but are not. And concerning brain structures of male and female, this is what they found out. Modern studies show male and female brains at birth are not structurally different, making the likelihood of a specifically homosexual brain remote indeed. The main consistently replicable difference between male and female brains from about age two or three is their size. And so according to the research, there is no genetic, hormonal, or biological structure link to the practice of homosexuality. This is why we cannot point to our biology. We cannot point to our genes and say that this is who I am. So how does one become or develop these tendencies to have a desire for the same sex? Where does that come from? The book of 1 John, chapter 2, 15 and 17, do not love the world 
or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its, and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. And so how do people end up having these cravings, these desires, and because they have these desires, they say to themselves, well, this is who I am. It's actually learned from the practices of the world. It is a learned behavior. The world teaches us the way we ought to behave. And from the world, we have practices that cater to the cravings of sinful men. Brethren, all of us have cravings which are of the world. And so what we need to do is to make sure we don't give in to those cravings. Unfortunately, we are being bombarded with information from the world which tells us whatever you feel like doing, it's your life, do what, do what you want to do, right? This is me. I was built this way. I was created this way. This is what I feel like doing. These are my cravings. And so when a person has cravings, a person now, because of what, is, because of what the world is telling us to follow your cravings, basically, then we are learning that it's okay to follow your fleshly desires, even if it's against what we love. God, take note, the cravings of sinful man is not limited to homosexual urges, right? It is also, it is, it is also inclusive of other sinful urges like gluttony, drunkenness, and sexual promiscuity. These are just some of the lust and the cravings of sinful men. So what is the instruction of Apostle Paul for all of us? The book of Romans 12, verse 2, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think, and you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. So how do people end up having these cravings, uh, these fleshly cravings, and this attraction for the same sex? It is learned behavior. They learn the customs of the world nowadays in the information age, young kids, they have what are called tablets, right? And they're on their tablets all the time. Um, when you go out in school, what's the message? I mean, the message nowadays is you have, it's okay to have our, all these different sexual sexuality, different categories of sexuality, right? And so a lot of what used to be before as taboo now is the norm. And so the, the world is changing. And what is the root cause of the world rejecting the principles of God and adopting its own behavior? What's the root cause of that? Romans 1, 28, 26, because those people refuse to keep in mind the true knowledge about God. He has given them over to corrupted minds so that they do the things that they should not do. Because they do this, God has given them over to shameful passions. Even the women pervert the natural use of their sex by unnatural acts. In the same way, the men give up natural sexual relations with women and burn with passion for each other. Men do shameful things with each other. And as a result, they bring upon themselves the punishment they deserve for their wrongdoing. So according to Apostle Paul, the root cause of why the custom of this world is changing from 
before rejecting the practice of homosexuality to now really, really endorsing it is because they have rejected the truth and the knowledge about our God. And because of this rejection of our almighty God, the Bible says God has given them over to their corrupt minds. In other words, God basically said, okay, have it your way. He let go. Have it your way. Do what you want to do. And so now we have all kinds of perversions taking place all over the world because people have rejected the true knowledge about God. This has led to a corrupt way of life. And so what we can see from the biblical teaching is that behavior that the world teaches can be easily learned. What does the science say? Well, again, let's go back to that reference. My genes made me do it. According to the study, divorce doubles the risk of later homosexuality in children. So if children were raised in a home, a broken home, a broken family, it was more likely that they will have, they would, they would develop, they will become homosexuals. That's really kind of uh, intriguing because it points not to the biology or the genes, but to their environment, right? What else? The stages of psychosocial development toward adult heterosexuality are well-defined and accepted by developmental psychologists. Developmental psychology is a study of uh, the person's development in terms of cognitive function from different stages of life. For example, youth or children, youth, and then adult, midlife, all the way to elderly life. So your, 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 your psychology changes. And psychologists study the link between social, uh, social environment, your social interactions, and your cognitive development. And they pretty much establish different stages, normal stages of development. And so they have found that when it comes to heterosexuality, it is not genetically mandated. In surveys of adult homosexuals, many show deficits in several of these developmental stages, suggesting that homosexuality is cultural and environmental rather than genetic. So if there was a disruption in a stage of development during the, the time they were young, that usually leads in homosexual behavior. Okay, there are such, there's also much higher occurrence of homosexuality among those who have been raised in large cities rather than in rural areas, arguing that the environment is much more powerful than genes in the development of homosexuality. And a scientific, there's a scientific or sociolog sociological tool called path analysis, which argues that there is no social or familial, familial basis uh, to homosexuality, but rather a biological one. However, uh, social and family paths leading to homosexuality were collectively significant, though individual paths were not. In contrast, genetic paths were collectively insignificant. So according to the data, what leads, pathways that lead to homosexuality often come from social and family-related um, factors. Okay. About half of those with exclusive SSA, same-sex attraction, move towards heterosexuality over a lifetime. In other words, it changes, right? Because people learn behaviors. 
Put another way, 3% of the practicing heterosexual population, both men and women, claim to have once been either bisexual or homosexual. Um, these changes are not ther therapeutically induced, but happen naturally in life, some very quickly. Most changes in sexual orientation are towards exclusive heterosexuality. Numbers of people who have changed towards exclusive OSA, opposite sex attraction, are greater than current numbers of bisexuals and exclusive SSA, same-sex attraction people combined. In other words, ex-gays outnumber actual gays. Exclusive opposite-sex attraction is 17 times as stable as exclusive SSA, same-sex attraction for men, and 30 times as stable as exclusive SSA for women. Women move about more in their sexual orientation than men. This, this shows us within a person's lifespan, people change or sexual orientation, which is kind of odd. And this is more so in our, during our situation, especially with the pandemic, when people have time and learn, and, and not only with the pandemic, but the fact that we're so connected because of Facebook, where we get to share our experiences, become more open, right? And it's, it's one of those um, phenomenons that we presently see people are very dynamic when it comes to their sexual preferences. It's really, really unusual. Okay, for adolescents, this is also something that's eye-opening. For adolescents, most teenagers will change from SSA. Six, in fact, in the 16 to 17 year age group, 98% will move from homosexuality and bisexuality towards heterosexuality. And so people who report as homosexuals when they're 16 or 17, by the time they become adults, the 98% of them will become bisexual or heterosexual. 16-year-olds saying they are SSA or bi-attracted are 25 times more likely to say they are opposite-sex attracted at the age of 17 than those with a heterosexual orientation are likely to identify themselves as bisexual or homosexual. 16-year-olds who claim they are opposite sex attracted will overwhelmingly remain that way. So these studies, when we look at the, the summary of all the data that has been amassed over years and years of study concerning the scientific basis of homosexuality, it points to one conclusion. Studies reveal homosexuality is not genetically induced, genetically based. It's not biological. It is learned behavior. The environment you're in has a great influence in your preference. And so when a six or seven-year-old says, this is how I feel, it's because there's something that happened between the time they were born and up until the time they became six. And we can even conclude that even while in the womb, even in the womb, um, behavior can also be learned because it has been shown scientifically that infants or prenatals, the, the embryo inside the mother's womb, they are able to absorb the emotion and even information taking place outside of the womb. So learned behavior is what has been concluded by scientists who have looked in depth at the causes of homosexual behavior. However, let's scratch all of that. Let's just say 
for the sake of argument, okay, that indeed when a person says, I was born this way, he was born gay. Let's just say that, okay? So you have these real urges. We're not saying that people who have these urges are, are making it up. We know people have urges, people have cravings. Person will say, I was born this way. Let's say a person was born gay. What does that mean for us? Does it mean we are now going to follow what our biology tells us to do? No, this is what Yahusha tells us in John 3, 3 down to 6. In reply, Yahusha declared, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Yahushua answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. What if it's true that a person is born gay, born homosexual, born alcoholic, born adulterer? Because people who commit adultery, what do they say? Well, this is the way I made I was born this way, right? Okay, let's say that's true. Does it give us an excuse to follow our urges? No. Yahusha says we need to be born again. This is true, not just for the homosexual, the alcoholic, the adulterer. This is true for all people because all people are flesh. And because we are of the flesh, we are born of the flesh. We are of the flesh, right? And so we need to all be born Again, this is why we cannot use our humanity as an excuse. We cannot say to ourselves, I'm just human. <laughs> Therefore, I'm going to commit sin. We cannot say that because the Bible says, yes, you're human, but I gave you a gift. His name is Yahusha. And we need to be born again. What does that mean? We need to be remade, recreated again in Yahusha by becoming parts of his body through the power of baptism. When that happens, now we have Yahusha as our head we are born again and we when we are born again through the power of yahushua what are we able to do let's read the book of ephesians 4 21 to 24 surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in yahushua you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So if we are recreated anew, born anew in Yahushua, what should we learn to develop? Our new attitudes, our new minds in Yahushua. We need to be taught in accordance with the truth that is in Yahushua. And what are these truths that is in Yahushua? These are truths that counter the corrupted, deceitful desires that is still in the flesh. Because even if we're baptized in Yahushua, we are still flesh, right? And so there's still those desires within us. This is why we need to understand the truth that is in Yahushua. Before an alcoholic can overcome his alcoholism, what does he need, what does he need to first confess? That he's an alcoholic. Isn't that like the first thing they teach you when you go to um, Alcoholics Anonymous? What's, what's their introduction when they go to Alcoholics Anonymous? Hi, I'm, and I am an. See, the first, before you can overcome alcoholism, you have to first realize alcoholism is against the will of God, right? Before a fornicator can overcome fornication, 
he needs to first believe and accept that fornication is against the will of God. Before a person can overcome drugs, he needs to first believe and accept that drugs is against the will of God. Before he can overcome homosexuality, he needs to first accept the truth that homosexuality is against the will of God. So it's the truth that will set us free. And so once we know this truth, what must we do? Colossians 3, 5 to 6, you must put to death then the earthly desires at work in you, such as sexual immorality, indecency, lust, evil passions, and greed. They're still going to be there, but we have to put it to death. In other words, we must not feed it, right? Instead, we must put it to death. This is why we as people of God, we need to first accept the truth that what is against the will of God, we can overcome. But I'm only human. I can overcome that. It's true that you're only human. However, what must we understand about our situation? Because we belong to Yahushua. 1 Peter 1, 18 to 19. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and, and without spot. Brothers and sisters, yes, we're human beings, but we have been purchased, redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. What does that mean? We now have the power of the blood of Yahushua. We, because of Yahushua, can do all things by his strength, and by his power. This is why we should not give in to any sinful desire that we, may, that we may have. A person might say, this is what I feel. Before a person commits sin, it begins with a feeling. It always begins with a feeling. But just because you feel it doesn't mean that's really you. Okay? Our true identity is Yahusha. And so we must put to death anything that is against the will of Yahusha, our king. Okay. All right. Let's go to our next question. There are some killers who suffered abuse when they were young and who were subjected to physical and mental abuse. This could result in, in them being abusive as well. So who commits the sin? Um, the, the, them? Are they the ones who, are, are, who should be accused of sin or the ones who raised them up to be a killer? <laughs> Right? So it's like, who to blame? <laughs> is it the one who killed or the one who raised up the killer? <laughs> who is to blame when it comes to all this? Now, this is also a touchy subject, but so before we go ahead and directly answer the question, I just want to make sure that uh, as parents, we have a great responsibility. What is that? Book of Psalms 127, 3 to 5. Children are a gift from Yahuwah. Do you believe that, brethren? That's very true. Children are a gift from Yahuwah. They are a reward from him. Children born to a young man are like arrows in a warrior's hands. How joyful is the man whose quiver is full of them. He will not be put to shame when he confronts his accusers at the city gates. The Bible says children are a gift from Yahuwah. And because they are a gift from Yahuwah, there are expectations that Yahuwah has for parents. What are they? They need to be very, very careful at how they raise up their kids. Why? To what are they likened to? They're like arrows in the warrior's hands. In this case, who's the warrior? The parent. Who are the arrows? The children. 
And so the trajectory of a child's life is often determined or greatly influenced by the one who carries the arrow, right? Because he can shape the arrow. He can aim the arrow. What if the parent's aim is not too good, right? What if he aims down? What's going to happen to that arrow? It's, gonna, it's not going to reach any far places, right? And so uh, parents have this responsibility to prepare their children to reach their target. And so they have a great responsibility. And so what is the responsibility of a parent? so that the child that they're raising, which are gifts from God, will be a benefit for them and a benefit for the community of God's people. The book of Proverbs 22.6, direct your children onto the right path. And when they are older, they will not leave it. What is our responsibility as parents? Direct your children to the right path. So we teach them what is the difference between right and wrong, right? Because they don't normally know that when they're young. And where will, this, where will they usually get this idea between right and wrong if we don't teach that to them? They're going to get that from social media. They're going to get that from movies. They're going to get that from their friends. Well, what if their friends tell them, well, homosexuality is okay, right? What if their friends tell them, it's okay to hate if they are Asian, you know? It's okay to hate if they're, if, they, if they're not of the same faith as we are. If we don't belong, if they're a different religion, we can hate them. So if we're not directing our children ourselves, somebody else will. And we don't want to do that. We want to make sure we get to teach them. We need to be the one to direct them where to go. Because if not, they might be led astray. Okay. And what else does the Bible tell us? When we teach our children, what should we be careful about? Ephesians 6 verse 4, parents do not treat your children in such a way as to make them angry. Instead, raise them with Christian discipline and instruction. The Bible says, yes, we must uh, raise them up with Christian discipline and instruction. At the same time, do not treat them in such a way as to make them angry. And so we need to understand the best way to teach our children because all children are different. You have two kids, you have two different personalities. One approach might work the other, uh, with one child, but it doesn't work with the same child. So we need to understand them and teach them accordingly. Raise them up in Christian discipline and Christian instruction, which involves not just discipline, but also love and understanding and patience, right? That way... Instead of uh, raising them in anger, we raise them in love and compassion and forgiveness. Because the one thing we don't want to do is be abusive parents. Because if you're an abusive parent, and here you are in your mouth, you're always shouting Yahusha, Yahusha this, Yahusha that. But the way you raise up your child is so abusive. Do you know what's going to happen when they get older? What might happen to your child if you're always mentioning the name of Yahusha, but you're mistreating them, you know, what are they going to end up doing? They're going to end up hating who? Yahusha, right? <laughs> Yahusha has something to say about that. Mark 9.42. But if you cause one of these little ones who trust in me to fall into sin, 
it would be better for you to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone hung around your neck. And so if we are a person of influence, person of authority, maybe you're a deacon, maybe you are a pastor, maybe you are a religious teacher, and you do something, something that will cause them to lose their trust in Yahusha and fall into sin. Yahusha says it's going to be worse for you. It would be better if you're thrown into the sea with a large millstone hung around your neck. Brothers and sisters, as parents, we need to understand our influence is so great. This is why when the question was asked, should the parent also be blamed for a killer? Maybe. Most likely the answer is yes. Does it mean they're excused? The one who commits the killing, the, the grisly murder or the heinous crime, are they now no longer guilty of their own actions? What do you think? What does the Bible tell us? Romans 14 verse 12. Every one of us then will have to give an account to God. And when we give an account to God, we cannot say my wife made me do it. My parents made me do it. I was born in a bad zip code. I was born with bad genes. My teacher abused me. We cannot say that. We will be, we're going to have to give an account for what we do, the choices that we make. Why? Why are we going to be accountable for what we do? Let's read Deuteronomy 30, 30 19. I am now giving you the choice between life and death between God's blessings and God's curse. And I call heaven and earth to witness the choice you make. Choose life. Why are we going to be each accountable to God regarding what we do? Because all of us have a choice. And we need to realize and understand nobody can make us do anything. We make the choice. The sooner we understand that we have the power to choose because God created us with the freedom to choose. Once we realize that, we are empowered. We need to make that choice. But the choices we make, we're going to be held accountable for, for those choices. Well, what if you had a hard upbringing? What if you lived a life of poverty? What if you did not have the best education in the world? Are there people who were abused in the past, did not have the best education in the world? Were there people in the past who were not given any opportunity to succeed, but set, were set up to fail, yet they succeeded anyways? Are there? There's so many. So many. Why? Because they made a choice. They chose that they will not be defined by their past, but by the choices that they make in the present. So brethren, understand the power of choice. And even when we are presented with situations where it's so difficult to make the right choice, what can we always count on God to do? Corinthians 10 verse 13. But remember this, the wrong desires that come into your life aren't anything new and different. Many others have faced exactly the same problems before you. And no temptation is irresistible. You can trust God to keep the temptation from becoming so strong that you can't stand up against it. For he has promised this and will do what he says. He will show you how to escape temptation's power so that you can bear up patiently against it. What must we understand? 
whenever we are in a situation when we feel the overwhelming desire to do wrong and we cannot resist it. Bible says you can resist it. With whose help? With God's help. This is why let us rely, let us look for that promised help of God. Because it doesn't matter what our past is. We can make, our, our life can still become better. Look at the example of Joseph, right? I mean, Joseph did not exactly have the best childhood, right? I mean, he was bullied. He was sold to slavery. He was accused of being a rapist. He went to prison, right? But did he blame his environment? Did he blame his childhood? No, he kept being faithful to who? God. What became of Joseph? We know what happened to him. He became prime minister of all of Egypt, second in command next to Pharaoh, right? And God used him in a powerful way to save the people there in Canaan, especially his family, who would eventually become the people of Israel. And so brethren, always give our life in the hands of God. God can cause all things to work together for good, regardless of our past. doesn't matter what it is. And so to answer the question, who, who is accountable for a killer? I say both the upbringing and the person, the person, but more so the person because it's still his choice. Okay. All right. Let's go to the final question of the, the evening. John 279. Why did Yahusha Christ turn water into wine? What does the wine represent? So let's go ahead and turn uh, to uh, the book of John, chapter 2, and look at what this is all about. Why did Yahusha turn water into wine? The next day, there was a wedding celebration in the village of Canaan, Galilee. Yahusha's mother was there, and Yahusha and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festivity, so Yahusha's mother told him they have no more wine. And so Yahusha and his mother, they were invited in the wedding celebration in Cana. And when they were there, what happened during the festivities? They ran out of wine. And when you run, of, run out of wine, what happens to the festivities? It turns sour, right? And so Yahusha's mother was a bit concerned. Yahusha, what can you do about that? So they, he, she, she goes to Yahusha and says, they have no more wine. What does Yahusha say? Uh, four to five, dear woman, that's not our problem. <laughs> Yahusha replied, my time has not yet come. Uh, but his mother told the servants, okay, do whatever he, whatever Yahusha tells you to do. So Yahusha says, it's not really our problem, <laughs> right? Because it, it wasn't yet time for Yahusha. His time has not yet come. Um, and so when the mother tells the servants, the, 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 the those who were with him, the servants, um, to, to do whatever Yahushua tells him to do, what does Yahushua tell him to do? Uh, John 2, 6 to 8, standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 40 gallons. Yahushua told the servants, fill the jars with water. When the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. So Yahushua said, it's not yet my time, right? But he could do something that would point to his time. And so what did he do? 
He said, uh, standing by the six stone water jars, by there, the, the water jars, the purpose of the water inside the jar was to wash their hands because it was a Jewish custom that they had to wash their hands first before they would celebrate, before they would eat together. Okay, this was part of the uh, Jewish ceremonial washing. And so Yahusha told the servants, fill the jars with water and then take some water out of the jar. I guess it's placed in a cup and give it to the master of ceremonies. Now I'm assuming the master of ceremonies does not know that what's inside that cup came from the jar. Because if that was the case, I don't think he would drink it because that's for the purpose of washing your hands, right? And so here's a master of ceremonies was given this, uh, this thing to drink, right? And what does he say? When the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not making, not knowing where it had come from, though, of course, the servants knew it came from the jar, but they would not tell him that because he might not drink it. He called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. But you have kept the best until now. And so when the master of ceremonies tastes the wine, what was his reaction? He was puzzled in a good way, right? Because he said, this wine tastes even better than the wine we had at first. Because it was the Jewish custom to serve the best wine first and the lesser expensive wine uh, last. But when he drank this wine, wow, it's the best wine I had ever tasted. This was better than the wine we had at first. And so to answer the first question, why did Yahusha turn the water into wine? What's the answer? <laughs> because they ran out of wine. <laughs> And so he turned the water into wine. But what is the spiritual answer? Let's read 11 to 12. That was the practical answer, not the spiritual answer. This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Yahusha revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After the wedding, he went to Capernaum for a few days with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. And so... What is the spiritual reason for turning the water into wine? To reveal Yahusha's glory. This was the first time. Take note of that. I want you to remember that. This was the first time Yahusha revealed his glory. And the first time Yahusha chooses to reveal his glory by means of a miraculous sign. The miracle that he chose was turning water into wine. Which takes us to the next question, right? What does the wine represent? Because we believe every detail in the Bible has a purpose, right? And so the wine in this first miracle, in this first revelation of Yahusha's glory, what does it mean? What could it represent? What does the wine represent? Well, if you go back to the book of John 2, 9 to 10, when the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then when everyone has had a lot, of, a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine, but you have kept the best until 
now. And so what we have here, when Yahusha turned the water into wine, the wine that was, that was drank last is better than the wine that was drank, that was drunk uh, first, right? And so what is this pointing to? It's pointing to a difference in covenant. Because the first wine that was tasted, that was referring to the covenant of Moses. That was referring to the covenant that God made through the intercession or the ministry of Moses. It was good. But the best was reserved for last. The ministry of Yahusha would be better than the ministry of Moses. You get it? So Moses, the time of Moses at this point, is now transitioning to the time of who? Yahusha. Water into wine. Yahusha said, it's not yet time for me because it's not yet time for him to die. But he can point to that time when he will die, right? This is why he turned the water into wine. And the wine was better than the wine that they drank at first, because this points to a better covenant. This is why in Hebrews 8, verse 6, but now Yahusha, our high priest, has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood. For he is the one who mediates for us a far better covenant with God based on better promises, better wine. <laughs> the one that's replacing the first wine is better, better wine. Why? Better covenant with better promises. How is this covenant, this new covenant between God and people, how was this confirmed, this covenant with better, with better promises? Matthew 26, 27 to 28. And he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and said, each of you drink from it, for this is my blood, which, what does it say? confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. And so to confirm the covenant, Yahusha established Yahusha's Passover and the cup of wine that he gave to his disciples that represents his blood because the blood would confirm his covenant. When is this going to take place? When he sheds his blood on Mount Calvary. And so when Yahusha says to his mother, it's not yet time because it wasn't time for him to die yet, but he did reveal his glory and pointed to that time when he is to die, right? That's why it's the wine pointed to a better covenant. So that's the first. What does the wine represent? It points to a new and better covenant. What else does the wine represent? Take note, there's a big difference when you drink water and when you drink wine right? There's a big difference. You don't simply just add flavor to the water. You don't just add sugar to the water or Kool-Aid mix to the water, and then you have wine. It wasn't like that. It was transformation. For the water to turn to wine, it's not simply mixing it with something, right? It was a complete transformation. So what does that represent? It represents a new creation. This means that everyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. 
The old life is gone, a new life has begun. And so the wine in that miracle in Cana, the first revelation of Yahushua's glory, points to the transformative power of Yahushua. If he can turn water into wine, wait till he gets the opportunity to change your life. If he can turn water into wine, what do you think he can do with your life? He can transform it, right? This is why in 2 Corinthians it says this, but whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. This is something that Moses could not do. Yahushua can do. Water turning into wine tells us that we, ordinary human beings, can become more and more like who? Yahushua. He's transforming us to becoming like him. Water into wine. Okay. What else? What does the wine represent? Let's turn now. Let's, not, let's go to number three. Isaiah 1, 21 to 23. See how the faithful city has become a harlot. She once was full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your choice wine is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, companions of thieves. Y'all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the, the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case has not come before them. What is also represented by the, the wine, it represents a pure and genuine religion. Yahusha establishes a pure and genuine relationship with our God, a new and genuine way to live, a new and genuine religion. What must we do with this religion that was purchased for us by Yahusha? We need to make sure it's not diluted with water how do you dilute your wine with water when you mix it with things which are against the will of god what if you were given wine and you look at the cup right and it looks like wine on the outside but when you drink the wine you say mm, this is so bland it doesn't taste like wine how would you feel you would feel disappointed right how about religions who make the claim of religion but their practices reveal hypocrisy that is how they dilute the water they dilute the wine with water because they make justice righteousness and faithfulness become impure by their practices when religions who proclaim to be of god who proclaim to be of christ when they become companions of thieves when they love bribes and chase after gifts, when they do not defend the cause of the fatherless, when they do not care about the widow's plea, when they do all that, they are basically diluting. They are negating the genuineness and the purity of their religion. This is why what is our responsibility, what is genuine and true religion in the eyes of Yahuwah our God. James 1 26 27 do any of you think you are religious if you do not control your tongue your religion is worthless and you deceive yourself 
What God the Father considers to be pure and genuine religion is this, pure and genuine wine. To take care of orphans and widows and their suffering and to keep oneself from being corrupted by the world. And so two things we must understand in the practice of genuine religion. Number one, we need to take care of the needy because there are religions who only help those who can help them back. That's not good. We need to have a genuine interest in helping those who cannot help themselves. Number two, we must make sure that the ways of the world, we do not mix with the practice of our genuine religion because otherwise we would dilute the one. It will no longer be pure. And so to be pure, not only must it look acceptable on the outside, it must be authentic, right? And Apostle Paul warns in the last days, remember that there will be difficult time in the last days. They will hold to the outward form of our religion, but reject its real power, keep away from such people. And so they may have a religion that is legitimate on the outside, the form of religion, right? They may, not, they may have nice and beautiful facilities, but they reject the real power of religion. What is that? Helping others, loving others, mercy, forgiveness, grace, and compassion. That's the real power of religion. And if those who belong to religion and have diluted the genuineness of their faith, what is the warning of Yahushua? To the leader of the church in Sardis, write this letter. This message is sent to you by the one who has the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars. I know your reputation is alive and active church, but you were dead. Now wake up, strengthen what little remains, for even what is left is at the point of death. Your deeds are far from right in the sight of God. And so according to Yahusha, if there are religions who dilute their genuineness, because they may have the reputation as a live and active church. They may have the reputation as a true church, but if their practice, their showing of true love and mercy and helpfulness is dead, the Bible says, Yahushua yeah, said, wake up. You wake up. Your deeds are far from right in the sight of God. And so, the wine represents also a pure and genuine religion. And lastly, what does the wine also point to? Matthew 26. And he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and said, each of you drink from it, for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Mark my words, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. Why did Yahusha also choose as his first revelation of his glory and power, turning water into wine at a wedding? I believe it's on purpose, right? Why? Because that day when Yahusha took a cup of wine to establish his Passover, he also offered a promise. What was that promise? He said, mark my words. I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. And so it's pointing also to a future event in the father's kingdom. 
where we will be with Yahusha to drink new wine with him. And so in the first miracle of Yahusha, it was about turning water into wine. And in the end of days, we're going to be drinking wine again with Yahusha. This is why the wine represents, it also points to the great day of celebration with Yahusha in the Father's kingdom. What is this celebration about? Let's read one more passage, Revelation 19, 7 to 9. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. And the angel said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. And so it started with a wedding. It ends with a wedding. Isn't that nice? It started with a drinking of wine. It ends with a drinking of wine. Isn't that nice? Right? And so it points to Yahusha's day, the wedding of the Lamb that culminates in the wedding supper or celebration of the Lamb. Because in the Jewish custom, the wedding and the supper are two distinct events. And so on the wedding supper, the celebration, that's going to be a great celebration. Just like when Yahusha and his mother was invited in Cana, there's going to be another great celebration of a wedding. And who are those who will be invited? Who are those who are in the wedding? Those who are part of the rehearsal, right? If you're a part of the rehearsal, of course you're going to be in the wedding. How do we rehearse? this wedding supper with Yahushua's Passover meal. This is why, brothers and sisters, that wedding miracle in Cana, it's symbolic for many reasons. It points to the work of Yahushua, transforming our life so we can have a genuine relationship with Yahuwah based upon the new and better covenant that Yahushua confirmed with his blood so that we can have that supper with our king in the Father's kingdom and celebrate with joy forevermore. Because wine, after all, it is a symbol of celebration and joy. That's why the wine was chosen. Okay, that is our lesson, brothers and sisters. Let us stand for our prayer. Everlasting Father, Yahuwah, our God, thank you so much. For as we stand in our own homes, praying to you, reaching out to you, loving Abba. We know that you are preparing a great day when you will send your beloved son to appear to each and every one of us that we may be taken to your place and be prepared for the wedding of the Lamb. Thank you for preparing our hearts and minds. Help us as we wait to be always watchful, always being ready for the coming of our King. Yahushua HaMashiach. You're able to turn water into wine. You can also turn our tears of sadness into tears of joy. This is why we surrender completely to you. Your power is true. It is real. 
we have sensed it, we have felt it. Yes. It has transformed our life. Amen. Ever since we have decided to study all about you, yes. to study the scriptures that reveal you yes. every single day, every single moment, slowly but certainly, yes. we are being transformed in ever-increasing glory yes. to become more and more like you. We yes. feel so close to you yes. as though you were standing beside us Amen. because you have chosen to dwell in our hearts. Yes. We feel your abiding presence. Yes. Because of this, we are strong and yes. we can say we can do all things, not because we are strong, but because you are with us. Amen. Bless each and every one of us. Yes. Help us to share our faith. Yes. To bring more people to you. Yes. That they will come to know you as well. Yes. And choose you to become their Lord and King. Amen. Loving Abba. Merciful Father yes. Yahuwah. We ask please remember your people. Yes. Those who are in places of danger. Yes. And those who are in places where COVID. Is continuing to destroy lives of people and many more families. Amen. Please preserve and protect them. Yes. May you surround them with your blessing Amen. and heal those who have been afflicted. Amen. Father, we believe that you have listened to our prayers. Yes. You have blessed each and every one of us. Yes. We ask everything loving Abba in the name of our Lord and Savior, Yahusha HaMashiach. Amen. Amen.